Hello and welcome to Science Matters, the podcast of the Georgia Tech College of Sciences. I'm Renee San Miguel. I'm grateful you have taken this time for yourself to listen to this guided meditation. Self-care is so important and not selfish at all. That's Sarah Raymond with The Mindful Movement, one of many providers of meditation videos promising bliss on YouTube. In fact, in our fast-paced world where we wear the title of busy as a badge of honor, it is even more imperative that you care for yourself so that you can be your best for yourself and your loved ones. Holding Whether on you call it mindfulness meditation or just meditation, the practice has been around since the Buddha was talking about it 2,500 years ago. It's enjoying a renaissance thanks to a renewed interest in using it to relieve stress, boost productivity, and make people happier in their daily multitasking lives. A December 2018 story in the New York Times profiled certain business leaders, including Salesforce's founder Mark Benioff, who have embraced mindfulness meditation for themselves and their employees. And while that may sound like a commercial for your favorite yoga studio, a professor in the School of Psychology says there is science to back up claims that meditation can be the best thing for you in a world of distractions. In June 2017, Paul Verhagen published a book called Presence, How Mindfulness and Meditation Shape Your Brain, Mind, and Life. Verhagen details the renewed interest in meditation, along with traditional research done so far on how it affects office and schoolwork, physical and mental health. Whatever thoughts come and go in your mind at this point, simply observe them as if from a distance. The Honest Guys, a UK-based meditation video provider, show you low clouds skimming above a peaceful lakeside scene. Its hosts urge you to find a time where you won't be disturbed and to turn off all lights. 21st century technologies may be the cause of our distractions, but as you can hear, meditation has adapted to them nicely. People can now turn to many guided meditation videos as well as smartphone apps. Experts with very calm voices promise to rid stress from your daily life. Now notice your breathing and especially the still point between breaths. Verhagen is an award-winning writer of fiction. He's also an academic and he has immersed himself in the science of meditation. I met Verhagen in his office in Georgia Tech's J.S. Kuhn building, home of the School of Psychology. I started by asking the native of Belgium about the first time he tried meditation. Right out of high school when I was 17, I went into a Jesuit convent, so I was a Catholic monk for two years. Um, And one of the things we did there was a 30-day retreat, silent retreat. I think this was partially the kind of weeding out thing. It's like the calculus uh, class, I guess, for first-year students. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I just loved it. So there were three or four hours a day when, when we were doing meditation. And um, even though this was a convent, we were in a very posh neighborhood in Brussels. Mm-hmm. So I was walking out in the, in the forest um, there, um, walking among the beech trees. Um, it was just gorgeous. I just really enjoyed it. It kind of felt like coming home. Did it ease your mind uh, at, at a time when you needed your mind being eased? I'm not sure if it eased. I didn't really come to it with expectations or with a particular need, as, as many people do, mm-hmm. I know, but I, I do feel that I like that aspect of it, the kind of calming of the mind, um, sometimes, not always, but it feels the same way like when you take a warm bath, it's like, ah, 
here I go again. Sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it's frustrating. Um, like, where's my mind going? But when you've done this for 20 years or so, you, you kind of learn to go to roll with those punches too. Um, I, I know that when I don't do it for a while, which happens more and more rarely, because I know what happens when I don't do it for a <laughs> while, I get more irritable, I get angry more easily. Um, and it, it's actually why I picked it up again like 10 years ago. My son was two or three at the time and he changed his mind, I think, for the fifth time when he wanted to drink. And so I was in the kitchen with a big bottle of orange juice that he didn't want anymore. And I was so frustrated that I just threw it on the floor. There was orange juice everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, we had to clean up the kitchen for like a couple of days. The cookbooks still are, are glued together. That was the moment when I thought like I should probably return to this. Verhagen's research into the origins of meditation includes the founder of one of the world's largest religions and the American scientists who introduced it to the United States. Well, the term goes back to the Buddha, so 2,500 years ago, and um, the Buddha has this prescription, is maybe a strong word, we had this thing he calls the Eightfold Path, like the path to enlightenment and um, right or correct or good mindfulness is the seventh uh, part of this. Um, and the word he uses for this is sati, which some people translate as remembrance, other people translate this as alertness or awakeness or something like that. It has to do with, I guess, being concentrated, being focused mm -hmm. and being aware of what's happening in the moment. The person who started in the United States is John Kabat-Zinn in 1979, I think, is kind of when he started a, um, a clinic working with people who had chronic pain problems and he himself was a meditator and a yoga instructor mm -hmm. and um, had noticed these benefits in, in his own life and thought well why don't I try this clinically. Um, Kabat-Zinn is a very fascinating figure. Um, among many things he's also a scientist, he's a, a biologist in training so he also understood from the beginning that he needed to make this something that's amenable to research so he mm -hmm. also started doing the first research into this. Um, and so he calls mindfulness paying attention on purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally. Non mm -hmm. So the non-judgment part there is, is really important. I mean, when you train people or teach people in meditation, the first thing you do is ask them to pay attention to their breath and just be with the breath for a couple of seconds. Um, and everybody thinks they can do this, but nobody can. Um, because it, your mind starts wandering immediately. You secrete thoughts. That's what your mind does, mm -hmm. obviously. Um, and part of the meditation is just when that happens, just go back to your breath and don't judge yourself for it. Just just go back over and over again. And if you do this long enough, you'll have thousands and thousands of repetition of this particular kind of training where you, know, you have a puppy that wants to break away and you mm -hmm. bring it back. Mm -hmm. At what point did you want to learn more about meditation? I'm, I'm a psychologist, I'm an academic, so I also want to know kind of the grounds about this. So I've always been, been reading up while I was meditating. I'm, I wanted to see if I could use this in my teaching at Tech here. So I um, I'm part of a team that teaches meditation in our introduction to Georgia Tech classes in the honors program, which has been absolutely fascinating and, and wonderful. Part of, it, part of it is that we, it's stress reduction, but we also call it mental acuity. Like we know that meditation helps with things like attention. Mm -hmm. um, there's even one study out there that suggests it has effects on GRE scores. I'm not sure if I believe just one study, but, but it's there. How does mindful meditation help 
those who practice it. Mindfulness meditation seems to have effects on, on a wide variety of things, on attention, on stress, on immune system, on well-being, on positive emotions, on depression, on anxiety. And that's true for um, healthy adults. And it also um, is true for uh, clinical populations. So uh, trials that have been run, clinical trials, mm -hmm. so control trials with um, people who are depressed or having anxiety, phobias, etc., um, suggest that there are um, very good effects there. They're um, just as good as standard treatment. And this is an interesting, I guess, um, side note to the mindfulness movement. When that study first came out and was published in JAMA, which is the, the big journal mm -hmm. of the American Medical Association, um, finding out that the effects on depression and anxiety, etc., are just the same as standard treatment, people in the mindfulness movement were dejected over this. Mm -hmm. um, whereas to me, it seems like if you can get the same effects with meditation as you can get with Zoloft or Xanax, that, that's pretty good. And I think at the very least, you have an alternative for people who don't really enjoy the side effects, say, of Zoloft or, or Xanax or, or don't, mm -hmm. um, don't respond to it well. So there's an alternative. But what kind of data lead researchers to that conclusion? Is it science-based? Anecdotal? When I asked Verhagen that question, he mentions a CESD, or Center for Epidemiologic Studies Depression. It's a standard questionnaire that helps health professionals diagnose clinical depression. So most of the literature uses standardized instruments. Mm -hmm. So for depression, you have, for instance, a CESD, which is a standardized diagnostic instrument. And you use that before and after a training. You use that in a control group as well. And you see how much uh, symptomatology disappears. In depression, we also often very look at relapse rates, which is really a big issue in depression. People mm -hmm. who have been depressed once are more likely to get depressed again. Mm -hmm. And that's the, the kind of the gold standard in, in depression research. So we find that it has, it has effects there. Um, you can look at physiological parameters. So people have tried to look at cortisol and stress, for instance. Mm -hmm. We can also look at um, brains, and people have looked at changes in brain structure and changes in brain functioning as well. What exactly are you talking about when you say changing the brain structure? The main effect seems to be that um, when you look at brain structure and gray matter, so that's uh, mm -hmm. what we tend to think of as brain cells, that um, you have larger gray matter volume, so particular parts of your brain grow larger, and um, those changes happen in parts of your brain that are part of what we call the salience network. So I need to back up on that mm -hmm, a little sure. bit. You have different attention systems in your brain. One is paying attention to what's happening internally. Um, it's the daydreamer in your head or the monkey mind. We call it the default mode network. Um, and then there's an attention network that is we call the executive network. It's the thing that clamps down. If you're a college student, you know this very well. You're sitting in a lecture. It gets really boring, but you need to pay attention. That's mm. the network you use for that. Okay. And then you have the salience network. is kind of like the hall monitor in, in your head. Or it's the you that's looking out at what you are doing. It's the observer in your mind. Mm -hmm. And so when you meditate, you, you pay attention to, say, your breath, which is what many meditators do. You notice you go off the breath, you come back. Mm. Um, going off the breath is the mind wanderer in your brain. It's the default mode network. Noticing is the salience network. And then going back is the executive network. And we know from brain functioning studies, fMRI, that um, when you meditate, you get better and better at 
using the executive network to bring you back on task. So the lasting changes is mostly in the salience network. Mm -hmm. That suggests that people who meditate now learn how to learn to observe, to pay attention, to be alert to what's happening inside them. A few studies also point to other possible changes in brain structure, Verhagen says, particularly in its white matter tracks. Those are the brain's information highways, if you will, that transfer data from one part of the brain to another. Aging can affect these pathways. The effect of meditation counteracts the effect of aging so that your white matter tracts are about those of a 20 or a 30 year old when you're in your 60s if you've been meditating, which is, I think, kind of a, a cool cool result. Refresh the brain, you go back in time in your brain. Yeah. Um, and then a, a third effect that you can see in, in the brain is when you put people in a scanner, you very often ask them to just not do anything for a while and you record the structure of the brain, but you can also record what they're doing at that time. That's called resting state. Um, People, of course, aren't really resting, right? You're in the scanner, you go like, how long is this going to take? And what am I going to have for dinner? And or is it going to be hard? And why is this so loud? So you're kind of, your mind wanders a little bit. When people who don't meditate are in the scanner, you typically find these three networks lighting up, but they kind of go um, one after the other. They're not very well correlated. In fact, they're anti-correlated. When you are mind wandering, you're not paying attention yeah. to the sounds you hear and, and vice versa. But in meditators, you have larger correlations between those networks so it seems like your attention becomes more and more integrated which also means that now you can pay attention to your mind wandering mm -hmm. um, which is actually a lot of what happens at least for me in meditation you feel your mind wander and then you kind of take a little bit of distance from it mm -hmm. you separate yourself a little bit from that you observe it and and then you come back to it so that seems to be happening as well so those are changes in attention and then there's a few other changes in brain structure that that uh, seem to be captured in that meta-analysis one is areas of the brain that deal with stress um, the subiculum uh, particularly so that seems to be larger as well suggesting that this might be why people are better at emotion regulation when they meditate mm -hmm. um, and then there's parts of the brain that seem to suggest that you have better body awareness how can mindful meditation be applied to those organizations and disciplines that might benefit from those those effects. One of my, my favorite studies um, is one where they had people do a very boring task. So they had them listen to beeps that were coming one after the other at irregular intervals. Mm -hmm. And they just had to keep track of how many beeps there were. And so um, all undergraduates complained about this because this was boring. You don't want to do 15 minutes of counting beeps. Uh, but people who had been doing meditation training did the task and nobody complained about boredom. So one of the nice side effects of meditation is that you might be less bored in your life because there's always something to see or something that's interesting. So that's the attention part. Verhagen says meditation also seems to help with regulating emotions. That has applications for helping people overcome post-traumatic stress syndrome or PTSD. There are, for instance, uh, mindfulness programs done in the military mm -hmm. um, that kind of and, and the goal is really to do this, to decrease the instances of PTSD mm -hmm. by actually helping people deal in the field as um, bad things are happening to them to kind of have this, this distance from them. Mm -hmm. And you see those effects too in, say, depression or anxiety, where a lot of the effects of depression and anxiety have to do with people sustaining those, right? Um, in depression, this effect is called rumination. You go 
through the same thoughts over and over again counterproductively typically something in your past you should have done differently if you're anxious they're typically towards the future you worry about something that might happen um, and you do this over and over again even though it doesn't necessarily help um, one of the side effects of meditation there is that it decreases worry and it decreases rumination um, and that seems to help or that is part of what helps with um, a decrease in symptoms so kind of helping with this emotion regulation part of it is i think um, equally important can mindful meditation survive in a multitasking world when I teach mindfulness meditation to um, undergraduate students here, it's it's a wonderful thing to do. One of the things we do is um, an hour-long retreat at, at one point. Um, so it's an hour where there's no cell phones. We do different meditation practices. Um, I give a little talk in the middle. And then afterwards, many students say, this is the longest I've been silent in like forever and haven't looked at the screen. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I think... Um, that one of the things I'm doing is, you know, I have a 10-year-old and I always tell him the war stories. You know, when I was um, a kid, we had to trek across 10 feet of shack carpet to actually change the channel on the TV and things like that. Um, but he has everything at his disposal. If he wants to watch a particular video, he can watch it mm -hmm. right now. Um, and he gets very frustrated if he can't. Is that maybe what we're te teaching... Um, this generation um, of students is what we did as our generation of students. Um, I'm in, in my early 50s, um, which is that you can concentrate on, on a single thing. Mm -hmm. Because multitasking is really hard. Um, and in fact, so much that many psychologists think you actually cannot do this unless a task is perfectly automatized. Mm -hmm. um, driving a car is, is a very good example. You can drive and talk to the person next to you at the sure. same time, but when stuff gets dicey on the road, um, the person next to you has to shut up, right? So you have to pay all your attention to, to the driving. So even that, which is an automatic behavior that's overlearned in, in, in many people, especially when once you're past... Um, the age of 30 mm -hmm. is something that you can't really do and so much of what we consider to be multitasking is really you do one thing you switch to another you do one thing you switch to another for the students you sit in a lecture um, you respond to a text mm -hmm. you, you go back to the lecture you go to your Facebook page you go back to the lecture oh you look something up that the professor is saying on Wikipedia so you do one thing after another and um, the problem there is that each switch incurs a cost mm -hmm. um, so it's harder to to go to go back um, attention has this kind of stickiness to it when you do one thing you want to do this one thing when you have to move it to something else it becomes more more complicated mm -hmm. and so meditation can maybe help with removing some of that stickiness um, but yeah that is I think also still very much an open question Verhagen says it doesn't take a lot of time to enjoy the benefits of meditation. He tells students about six to eight minutes a day is a good start. My thanks to Paul Verhagen, professor in the School of Psychology. His book, Presence, is available on Amazon, at Barnes & Noble, and at Oxford Press. Cyan Joe, a former research associate in the School of Psychology, composed our theme music. We also want to thank the Honest Guys and the Mindful Movement 
for allowing us to use audio from their YouTube videos. If you like this episode of Science Matters, please consider subscribing. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. This is Science Matters, the podcast of the Georgia Tech College of Sciences. I'm Renee San Miguel. Thanks for listening.